0: We have entered into another section of uh, Paul's epistle, and I introduced it uh, in, in part last week. And we took some time to remind ourselves of where we were within this letter, that we have uh, made our way to the end of chapter 6, or, or there in the first part of the end of Paul's letter at the first part of chapter 6. And it's here we are to see the heavenly reality of the exalted christ if we look back at paul's letter as a whole we can see that this heavenly reality was hinted at in chapter one when paul says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and again in chapter two when we are told that we are seated in the heavenly places with christ jesus And once more, in chapter 4, we were encouraged to know that Christ has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all. And so Paul ends his epistle with these words, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And he goes on to talk about a struggle. that's not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Well, praise be to God that we have one who is seated uh, above all the heavens, who even takes us into that place by his spirit and has blessed us with every spiritual blessing from that place. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 6, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. And be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your enduring Word, we have your truth before us. We also thank you that you bless us with your spirit through union with Christ Jesus, that your word would be illuminated to us. And so we ask for that work to be done now as your word is preached and sent forth, knowing, Lord, and trusting that it will not return void. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, last time, we saw, uh, as we approached uh, this passage, we, we saw that there uh, was an imperative to be strong and implicitly to be courageous. As we saw that example given or those words given to Joshua before his conflict or before leading the people of Israel's conflict to conquest in the conquest of the promised land. We also saw that our conflict is one with a defeated foe, though dangerous he is defeated, though uh, cosmic as it relates to spiritual, yet created. And so we should be encouraged to know that we go up against a defeated foe, just like we read in Deuteronomy, that account that he would go before the people of Israel, defeating those nations before them so that they would come and take the land. You see that interplay there between what God has ordained and what he has provided by way of means. And then again, that we have been given the provision of this armor that has been tried and tested and found worthy by our Savior. And so this is now appointed to us to go enter into this battle or to be to be able to stand firm within this battle. We need not enter it, we're in it. The question is, how will we stand firm? How will we resist in the evil day? Well, we'll cover uh, the just one verse today, and actually one point or one part of one verse, and that is verse 14, and it's the first part. The stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. We'll look at this under the point, the position, and the purpose. The point, the position, and the purpose. And if you're wondering if the point and the purpose are basically the same thing they are, there's just different emphasis, and so I gave them different titles. I didn't want it to be the point, the position, and the point, but let us start with the point so that we can get right to it. You may have been taught this passage in the past, you may have heard many sermons preached on the armor of God, and you may have heard that the point was something like this, that this illustration being made is so that you as a Christian are to take up your armor to fight against Satan and his cohorts alongside Christ. That we are, clad to, that we are to clad ourselves with these good things mentioned here in verses 10 through 17. And we might think that there is a way that we would take up a belt or a girdle of truth, that we would take up a breastplate of righteousness, that we would take up uh, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and take up the shield of faith and take up the sword of the Spirit until we get to these last few ones. Well, those last few ones are the helmet of salvation We know that scripture teaches us that the salvation is not wrought in God, or wrought in man, but wrought in God. So, how could we take up something that is not our work? And the sword of the Spirit is not our sword, it's the Spirit's sword, and it's made effectual by the Spirit. And so, how are we to wield something that yet we don't have, uh, the power is not coming from us? And so Brian Chapel rightly observes that such interpretation whereby we arm ourselves by our actions miss the point of the apostle. The point eludes us when we question how can I provide truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation and the spirit? The apostle's point becomes evident when we ask a better question. Who supplies truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation and the spirit. And the answer is our God, the one who provides our armor. So the point that we need to come to this morning as we enter into these pieces of the armor is not to ask how, but who? Who is it that we're to think of and who is it that supplies such things? Where do we get this idea that this passage is is ultimately about a one and not us. And certainly that it's ultimately about Christ. Where do we get this idea? Is that it's ultimately about Christ and his completed work and not us and our marching orders? Well, it's where the Spirit led Paul to get it from. In Isaiah chapter 11, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Some of you might be familiar with this uh, passage, is, it's, it's often considered uh, definitely messianic and sometimes it's considered during a uh, time of Advent, usually Advent readings have this because it, it's a very clear prophecy for us. It says in verse 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers, waters cover the sea. In, then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Amen. Well, you may have noticed that in verses 4 and 5, we have some uh, wearing happening. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And if you're a keen eye, you might say, Pastor Nate, faithfulness is not truth. This is a belt of faithfulness or a belt of righteousness, to which I would say good observation. But do you know why it's actually the same? Well, it comes to us by way of uh, the Septuagint or the LXX or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We've been learning about how not all the Jews returned with Ezra during the return from exile, such that they had uh, been dispersed all over, and over time, they, uh, some were carried off to Egypt. And so we, we find that in the third century B.C. or so, that there was a large community of Jewish people living in Alexandria, and they recognized that the amount of Jewish people able to speak and read Hebrew had Severely diminished so the word of God was separate from them. And so they set about to translate the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. Which was the common tongue of the known world thanks to Alexander the Great. And the Greek word the translators used for the Hebrew word here in Isaiah 11 verse 5. Is the same Greek word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 which is translated truth. So Paul, uh, being trained up and, and utilizing the Septuagint, utilized the word, the same word from Isaiah eleven five 5 that he uses in Ephesians six fourteen. And so we are supposed to draw that line, that direct connection here to the prophecy about Christ so that when we, read about girding our loins with truth we are not to first think about ourselves and how we do it but we're thinking about the one who has gone before us and already done it and had done it perfectly this goes even farther back than isaiah because paul tells us that we are to gird our loins with truth turn farther back in your bibles to exodus chapter 12 Remember, we're trying to get to the understanding. The point. What? Why is the pointing? Why is the point pointing away from us and not to us? We read in in Exodus twelve. We read of uh, the first Passover, and the first part of this chapter tells us of the needed sacrifice. What would it be like? Where? How would you? How How are you supposed to handle it? How are you supposed to kill it and prepare it? Well, the second part begins in verse 11, and it reads, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Why do we go back there? Is it, it's because this idea of girding our loins happened or were commanded to the people of Israel, that they were to gird their loins to be ready to act. They also girded their loins in faith. For the angel of death had not come. They were to gird their loins in anticipation of the angel of death, which would eventually lead to the people of Egypt saying, Get out of here. Leave this place. And so that they would be ready to go. And this Paul drawing on this language, the Spirit drawing on this language of, its, of the full revelation to point us not to ourselves, but to, away from ourselves, here to the Lord, who will do a great and awesome act. Let us turn one more time to now Psalm 43. It's a short psalm, I'll read it. In total, vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. O send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and up, upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul, why are you disturbed within me, hoping God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Here we, re- we read and we see that there is a light and a truth that will come and lead people to God's Holy hill. And so we are aware that when the one who came girded in the belt of truth spoke, he spoke these words. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And in another place, he said that his true disciples will know the truth, and the truth will set them free And as he prayed for all of his people, he prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth. The word of God is truth. And so we see that Paul's point here in Ephesians is not for us to take up this belt. It's not also primarily for us, I believe, to think of a Roman soldier first. Though I think contextually we can think of that and go there. but I think we are first to think of Christ clad in armor clad in a, in a belt of righteousness and faithfulness and of truth, who has gone before us and has said himself to be truth embodied. So that when we come to this next part, when we come to the position of it, we may see why it is positioned as the first piece of what's known as the armor of God. Its position is of warranted observation. Paul positions this girdle or belt of truth first. It's actually, if you think about it, not a piece of armor. A belt doesn't stop anything from attacking you or from attacking a soldier. It prevents something from happening, but not attack. It keeps the soldier, it keeps the warrior in a ready state. Just like in Exodus 12, it was to keep those eating the Passover meal in a ready state of action. And so Paul puts it in this first position because it it puts it in a foundational position. That is, the other pieces of armor will rely in some way upon this piece to hold them together. So, that if you have no belt, your breastplate falls apart. You have no belt, you'll trip as you run over your garments. You'll have no use for a shield because one hand will be on your garments or on your pants. You will never be able to wield the the sword of the Spirit and maintain the shield of faith without this belt of truth. In a now well-known introduction to a message that Alistair Begg preached at a Ligonier conference in 2009, he began by describing a visit he had at a Southern California church where he attended as only a congregant. He told of how there was a countdown, and at the end of that, he recounted that eventually the band did what it did. And in his words, he said, and then the person who was to lead the praise came out, and his opening gambit was this. Hey, how do you all feel this morning? And then he says, well, that was enough for me. We could have had the benediction right there. That was just so good. I thought... What kind of New Testament question is that? How do you all feel this morning? If I told you how I feel, this is Alistair Begg continuing, especially in light of the last five minutes, you would question whether I was even a Christian at all. So don't ask me that question. Ask me what I know. Ask me, Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. Ask me what I know to be a verity that can deal with my soul. That's what I need. That's why you have to get yourself under the control of the scriptures. That's why it is what we know, the verities of scripture, which fuel our hearts and our emotions and lead us on. What I am agreeing with Alistair Begg here is that the truth is the paradigm of the Christian life. It's not about what we feel. It's about what we know. We feel a lot of things. And our feelings deceive us. Our our desires deceive us. In our flesh and by work of the evil one and by influence of the world, we are bombarded by lies We want to be led away by these lies. We're tempted to be led away by these lies. So it is fitting that we begin with the belt of truth. Because truth is the paradigm of the Christian life. The scriptures are a declaration of this truth. Who God is. And so we may know who we are. And what God requires of his creatures. Supremely and in its scope... It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ and graciously to us in the gospel. And so here we are told not to be as unbelievers who are described as futile in their minds, darkened in their understanding, containing ignorance, but that we would be clothed or having been clothed as a new creature in Christ, born in the likeness of God having been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so we are to speak the truth to one another. The truth is to be around us in such a way, making us ready for action as a daughter or son of God. We recognize here that the position that truth plays in the Christian life is one of foundation. It's one that really defines the Christian life. For somebody that stops seeking truth, stops growing in their knowledge of God, is one that we wonder about. For these things are to be ever interesting to those that are enlivened by the Spirit of God. I know my children are ever interested in the stories of my childhood. In my upbringing, they're always wanting to know new stories. I can never think of them always, but sometimes I do. And they're always interested because I'm their father. So is the same for us in scripture. It's to be ever interesting to us. For God is our father in Christ. Which brings us to the purpose. If we are to have this belt or this girdle of truth around us, if this foundational piece of clothing weaves together this armor of God, we we would want to know in some form the purpose of it. How does it play in our lives? Well, as I said at the first, this passage is not primarily presented to us as something we are to do, but something we are to know. That the Spirit has been driving this point home for the last six chapters. You may go back as you go home, and if you have time to go and look and read through Ephesians, it doesn't take you that long, or or you can even do a word search, and you can look for truth or know, and you'll see it scattered throughout. Paul's letters. But in short, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In chapter 3, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And our text helps us also this morning by saying, not gird yourself. That's not what the text says. What does the text say? Having girded your loins with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is, you are girded with truth if you are in Christ. You are girded with the belt of truth given to you by the one who is truth, so that you will be able to resist in that evil day, as it says in verse 13. Ian de Guede comments and he says Paul says be strong in the Lord put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil what many of us hear in these words is a call to triumphal action as if it's completely up to us to take on the devil and withstand his schemes if we would just put on the whole armor of God we should therefore constantly be able to stand firm against all of Satan's schemes God has done his part perfectly in making the armor available. Now it is up to us to choose whether to use it. Meanwhile, God appears helpless in heaven, waiting to see how it all turns out. Is Paul really exhorting us just to try harder? Just to be more, learn more truth? That we would be better Christians? Would Paul now, in his final words, exhort the Ephesians to a covenant of works? May it never be. Christians who think this way begin to view themselves or others as loser Christians who are lacking in some spiritual discipline and so are regularly tripped up by the schemes of the evil one. They forget or have forgotten or never have been taught at least two things. What scripture teaches and is summarized in our confession Of faith. In chapter 13. Of sanctification. That they are united. Into Christ. Effectually called. And regenerated. Having a new heart. And a new spirit. Created in them. Through the virtue. Of Christ's death. And resurrection. Are also. Farther sanctified. In other words. As the catechism says. sanctification is a work. Of God's. Free. Grace. Because we having girded our loins with truth, are able to stand firm and resist the devil in that day. Secondly, what is brought to us by way of the Heidelberg Catechism in question 114. But can those converted to God obey these commands perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. So that when these powers visit you and they knock on your door, as I said last week, and they knock on the door of your heart and mind and are looking for who you used to be in Adam, tell them that Adam's son or Adam's daughter doesn't live here anymore. Christ's son or Christ's daughter lives here now. Or as Brian Chapel puts it, when the day of evil comes and our temptation is great, we should not say Satan can we should not say Satan cannot touch me because of how truthful, righteous and faithful I have been. Rather we should say I am protected by the truth that though I feel weak I am strong. Though I have believed the lie and have sinned, I am upheld by one who is sinless and is truth. We see why Paul tells the Ephesians in verse 18 that this is to be done in all prayer and petitions. And when the catechisms of our forebears ask how have we been taught to pray, each one turns to the Lord's Prayer. As I said most recognize that there are six petitions within it, the sixth being, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so I'll read for us for our benefit again, Again, question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the sixth petition mean? It means by ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. Here is the point and the purpose of the belt of truth or the girdle of truth is that we have it in Christ because Christ Wore it perfectly. And so, having it in Christ, it holds us together that day by day we're reminded or we're bombarded by lies, by the lies of the evil one that want us to question the goodness of God, his sovereignty. And his care for us. But we have. We have the truth of Christ. We have the word of God. We have his word. To gird us. To hold us together. So that we may stand firm in that day. And until the end. Let us pray. And as we pray. I'll be reading a prayer that uh, was so wonderfully worded by Martin Luther, so bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, praise and thanksgiving be unto you that we, miserable man, and though we were a thousand as such we are, Could not withstand a single devil. Yet by the help of your holy angels, we do withstand them. There is in us not a drop of wisdom, while the crafty evil one has a whole ocean full. Yet shall he not know how, nor be able to harm us. Our foolishness and great weakness put even his wisdom and power to shame. For all this, O gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we owe gratitude unto you alone. For it is of your glory that you show forth your wisdom and power in our unworthiness and foolishness and weakness. And all God's people said, Amen.